Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Father, we ask, Father, for uh, um, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. God, we need you to open up our eyes and our hearts to really know you. Father, I, I thank you for what I see in this text. God, that that knowing you breaks the power of sin. And God, we want it broken in us. God, we want it broken in our lives. And so, Father, help us to know you. Help us to see your glory. God, help us to, to experience you in ways that change us to the very core of our being. Father, please speak to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can be seated. So uh, what I want to say right off the bat about this text is that uh, the Bible celebrates marriage, okay? Uh, What you need to know is that from cover to cover, the Bible exalts marriage as a good thing, as a beautiful thing. In fact, it it is seen as the picture. uh, God decided to do this. Uh, He made it the picture of Jesus' love for his church. Jesus is said to be the groom, and the church is said to be the bride, his people. And so throughout the Bible, the Bible celebrates marriage, and it celebrates the beauty of the sexual relationship within the framework of marriage. And so you have an entire book of the Bible in your Old Testament, Song of Solomon, that is dedicated uh, to the beauty of the relationship that a husband has with his wife, okay? So um, you're saying, well, pastor, why, why are you talking about marriage? Marriage is not even mentioned in this text. Well, it is mentioned by by, I guess, uh, by definition of sexual morality, all right? So verse three says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality. Now, by definition, sexual morality is any sexual relationship outside of the marriage covenant, okay? And, and so really, when, whenever you hear the, that phrase, sexual morality, what you should think of marriage because marriage is is the defining uh, defining parameter of what what constitutes what the bible celebrates and says is beautiful and says god created as a gift to you and what the bible says the wrath of god is coming upon this all right so what 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 defines that well the the parameter there the fence there that e- either makes it either this beautiful god-given wonderful gift that the bible celebrates with the whole book of the bible and and the wrath of god is coming upon this the the fence that separates that is marriage. And so actually this Bible, this ver- this passage says has a lot to do with marriage. And so you need to know that the Bible celebrates marriage, okay? Um, man, I, I don't know if I need to say, I said it in the last passage, but um, no, nah, I'm not gonna, uh, never mind. Uh, okay, 
The other thing you need to know, I, I ran short on time, so I got I to do better managing. All right, the other thing you need to know is that the Bible celebrates celibacy for Christ's sake, all right? Um, that's something that's actually not talked about very much, but Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, man, it, it is a beautiful thing if God gives you the gift to not be married. Uh, Paul says most people, most people should be married. Uh, most people, they're wired that way. They have a desire for uh, an intimate relationship with a husband or a wife, and so they should pursue that. That's, that's the way God does designed us, but God says there are some people who, who, are, who are built another way, and the way that they're built is that they, they have the ability to pour out their entire lives for Jesus. Basically, here's what Paul said. Paul's like, my life is too full for a wife. <laughs> That's really what he said in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, my, my life is too full of kingdom joy and kingdom fruitfulness and kingdom effectiveness. It is so packed full of this, this engine for the kingdom that I actually don't have time or energy to devote to a marriage relationship. And God says, that's beautiful, all right? And so the Bible lifts up those two things. It lifts up marriage as this beautiful relationship given by God, and it lifts up celibacy for Christ, for those people that say, you know, God's, God's wired me to be single, but not just to be single so that I can golf more and save more money and not have the hassles of someone nagging me and watch whatever I want on TV, okay? That, that's called something else. That's called selfishness, all right? Uh, but, but Paul's like, I, I, I want to be single for the glory of God. I want to be single so that my life can burn out for Jesus and I can devote it all to him, all right? The Bible celebrates both of those two things. The interesting thing about that is that our culture celebrates none of that, right? Our culture actually goes the other way. Um, when you look at television and reality TV shows and magazines and entertainment, almost every inter entertainment medium is, is not going to celebrate marriage. It is absolutely not going to celebrate celibacy for Christ's sake. It's going to celebrate sexual immorality, all right? And so what I'm saying today is countercultural, but you know what? Don't, don't think, well, hey, in the good old days it wasn't. No, it, it was countercultural then as well. If you, if you read history about Paul's day, they were as tore up and broken and busted in sexual morality as we are today, okay? Maybe worse in the Roman Empire. We've had, we've had a lot of generations of, of Christianity and the Christian church that I think have, have done a lot of good things in our society that weren't there in Paul's society, okay? So what Paul is saying is incredibly countercultural. What, what we're gonna say today, incredibly countercultural, all right? Now, how does Paul start this out? Well, he starts this out by saying, all right, guys, we wanna know the will of God. Uh, we want to know the will of God. Now, why, why do believers want to know and obey, not just know, but obey the will of God? Well, the reason for that is that we, it's what we believe about Jesus. We believe that he is the fountain of living waters, that he's the bread of life, that he, he is the way, the truth, and life. Those are all things he said about himself, and as believers, we believe it, okay? I, I don't know about you, but I'm convinced that Jesus is the path to my happiness. I, I believe that. I believe that he's the path to my joy. I believe that he's the path to a significant and a fulfilling life. I am completely convinced of that, okay? And because of that, and hopefully you're convinced of that, we want the will of God. We, we, want, we want God's will. And what does it say God's will is in this passage, okay? Well, verse 3 says, this is the will of God, your big word here, sanctification, okay? What does the word sanctification mean? It's, it's the will of God for you, all right? Sanctification means you, it's the process by which a believer, a Christian, becomes less and less like them and more and more like Jesus, all right? So sanctification is the process by which I'm putting off Jason, all right? I'm putting off the old Jason, all right? I'm putting off sin. Um, I'm, 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 I'm getting rid of progressively 
hopefully advancing, um, getting rid of the sin in my life, and I'm putting on righteousness. Through the work of the Holy Spirit inside of me, I'm being set apart to Jesus with a new heart and a new mind that results in a new life. All right, look at verse 7. It says, God called us not for impurity but for holiness. Right? Whenever, whenever God calls you to salvation, whenever he calls you to, to put, it, put your faith in Christ and be joined to Jesus' resurrection, whenever he calls you to that, he's, he's calling you to holiness. All right, There is nobody that God says, hey, I want to save you from hell, but I don't want to do anything else in your life. You know, just go on. Just go on and play till hell, okay, uh, or till heaven. I mean, God, God doesn't do that. God doesn't save people, but he's not interested in their life, Okay. So Paul says God's called us not to impurity. He's called us to holiness. He's called us to to become like Christ. And so he says the will of God for you is your sanctification that you would abstain from sexual immorality. Okay? There's a ton of stuff we could look at in this passage, but I want to give you what I think is a couple of the crown jewels, all right? And the biggest thing I think we learn from this passage about sexual morality is its connection to knowing God, all right? So look at verses 4 and 5. Um, Verse 4 says that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. All right, so Paul says, hey, man, I I want you to abstain from sexual morality. I want you to know how to control your own own body in an honorable way. I want you to know how to be married. I want you to know how to live with a wife in an honorable way. I want you to know how to do that, and I don't want you to live in the passions of your flesh like people that don't know God. All right, so, so basically Paul's making this connection to not knowing God to being a slave to your passions. All right, so not knowing God causes you to justify your passions. It causes you to, to be conquered by them. Like, like I, I think it's the testimony of so many people. It certainly was the te- my own testimony prior to my salvation that I was ruled by my passions. There was a whole bunch of stuff that I knew I shouldn't do and really didn't want to do. But man, it just, it just rolled over me. It just had me. It, it conquered me. All right, and, and so Paul is saying, when you know God, when you know God, you, you, there, there, there's an element of freedom there from your passions of your flesh, the old life, all right? Now, let's take a little, little, little slow down here. What does it mean to know God? Well, to know God is, is to know him in the gospel, all right? It's to repent of your sin and to put your faith in him. It's to be joined to the resurrected Christ. It is to be indwelt by the Spirit of God. It's to have a new mind and a new heart. It, it's, it's to have God's law written on your heart. Now, one of, the, one of the big differences between a believer and an unbeliever is when a believer sins, he actually doesn't even need anybody to tell him that he sins. He knows it in his heart, okay? I mean, I, I, as I think back to my own conversion, that, that was like this monumental change is prior to my conversion, I would sin, I would, I would be reckless with my life, and I would feel bad about it, and I, I'd feel terrible that I crushed my mother, and that I disappointed my dad, and that I, you know, disgraced my, my family. Um, but man, when I became a Christian, I just couldn't do it. Like, there was this, you know, crushing weight whenever I would sin, and nobody even had to catch me in the sin. Like, when I sin, there is this Holy Spirit conviction in my life, all right? That's, that's God putting his law in your heart, all right? That's what it means to know God. To know God means you, you know that Jesus is the treasure worth giving everything for. Prior to my conversion, I respected Jesus. I thought, yeah, he's a good guy. He did all that great stuff. Mom and dad love him. I should probably love him too. 
but like I really wasn't very interested in him, okay? After my conversion, after I came to know God, man, Jesus became the big deal, all right? I began to be fascinated with Jesus. I began to be caught up with caring lots about what Jesus, what, what he thought, what he did, what he wanted from me, from me. Knowing God means you've found Jesus to be the treasure worth giving everything for, okay? Now, here's what I don't think Paul is saying. I don't think we should imply that Paul is saying, okay, once you know Jesus, once you know God, once you become a Christian, then all of a sudden, well, yeah, you just don't sin anymore. You know, you get this little whee, halo around your head. You walk around just kind of floating on top, you know, and you just don't sin anymore. Hey, if you think that about yourself, you have mental problems or something. I don't know. Like, you're not seeing things clearly. You need a wife to tell you that you're wrong, okay? You, you, need, you need something because that's just not true. Um, that's not true about any sin. It's not true about pride or selfishness or anger or covetousness or greed or unforgiveness, okay? Um, that's not what the Bible's saying. You know, you know, one of the greatest testimonies of that is that Paul is writing to a great church. Okay? If you've been with us in our series, this is a fantastic church. Like in chapter one, he says, I remember your labor love and your, your, your work of faith and your steadfastness of hope and how you receive the gospel in much affliction and how you're making disciples. You make disciples. I mean, Paul basically just stands up and says, great job, great job, guys. All right. Why is he writing about sexual morality to a great church? You know why? Because Christians still struggle with sin. We still, we still struggle with sin. Okay, so, so Paul is definitely not saying, hey, you know God, and all of a sudden your struggle with all sin is gone. No, he, what he's saying is, is once you know God, you begin this process of sanctification, and you should, you should want it more and more. Remember that little phrase, more and more? We find it here, don't we? We found it last week. We find it here in this passage, too. In verse 1, he says um, that you ought, that you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. Paul says, man, you're pleasing God. You're doing great, but you should do so more and more. What is that? That's sanctification. That, that's God saying, hey, here's the Christian life. Man, you come to know Jesus, and you come to get some freedom from sin, and what do you want to do? You want more, right? You want to become more like him, and more like him, and more like him, and more like him, and more like him, all the way to, you know, as long as you live, and all the way to glory. You want to become more and more like Christ, all right? And so what Paul is saying is the key to our, our, our freedom from sexual sin and from all other types of sin is to be wrapped up in this experience of knowing God. 1 Peter 1.14 says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. All right? Um, your former ignorance. In other words, before you came to know Christ, man, you, 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 were, you were caught up, you were conformed, you were, um, you were enslaved to these passions, but now that you've come to know Jesus, things should be different, okay? Now, how, how, how are they different? That's, I want to I try to answer that for you today. Um, I want us to look at that together. How, how, is, how does knowing God give victory over sexual sin? I think it's in this way. First of all, knowing God is wrapped up in knowing the glory and joy and hope and happiness of God, all right? Um, John Piper said something a long time ago that, man, I, I can't think about sexual sin without thinking about what Piper said. But Piper said something to this effect. There is much more power in a superior pleasure than there is in a command, okay? In other words, a lot of people want to live the Christian life by don'ts, right? Like, how do you live the Christian life? Well, don't do this, and don't do that, and don't do this, and don't do that, right? Here's your rules. Now go out and obey them. Uh, most people just fail. Um, but God intends something different. God intends for, as you come to know God, you come to experience that he's the best thing. 
And, and you come to know his glory and his majesty and his, his, his beauty. And the more that you are satisfied in him, the less power all this has over you. Okay? In my discussion with people over the last 23 years here at Lincoln Avenue, in my discussion with people who, Christians particularly, who fall into sexual sin, either lust or pornography or maybe an affair or something like that, I always, always, if I get a chance, I want to ask them about, okay, what was the path that led you into sin? Like, how'd you get there? Um, let, let me summarize answers for you, okay? Here, here are most of the time the answers that I get. Well, pastor, I, I was feeling this incredible sense of discontent in my life. Or pastor, I was feeling this incredible sense of feeling sorry for myself. You know, just feeling like I've been cheated, feeling feeling like I'm, 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 not, I'm not getting what I deserve. Uh, I'm in this relationship, and yet I'm lonely, and my needs aren't met, and uh, I'm unfulfilled, and I'm not respected. And, and here's one that if I dig, sometimes I gotta dig for this one because most people don't even realize it, but if I, if I start digging, you know what they end up saying? I, I was bored. Like, I, like my life was just kind of meaningless, and I had this boredom about me, and, and I was just chasing after something to fill me up. Here's, here's how I, if you had asked me, okay, Pastor, summarize with one word uh, what people have told you is the path that led them into sexual sin. Here's the word I would use, emptiness, emptiness. This feeling, this nagging sense of emptiness, okay? Now, here's what I wanna tell you authoritatively from the scriptures, okay? Sexual immorality will never, Pornography will never, lust will never, ever fill your emptiness up as a believer. It, it cannot happen. Like it's an impossibility for a believer. Now, now for someone who's not a believer and they don't know God and they're, they're searching for the highest thing in this life that they can grab onto, maybe so. Maybe, maybe sexual morality is the pinnacle of what they'll ever experience in this life. That's sad, but maybe so. But for a believer, you will never ever be satisfied. It will never fill up your emptiness. And there's abundant examples of that in the scripture. Man, a guy like David, <laughs> Man, David starts out so beautifully in his Christian life, and then, then he gets power. And man, power is a dangerous thing. I, all of you guys that are praying to be really powerful people, uh, be really careful there, okay? Um, because powerful, power is a dangerous thing. And when David gets power, he starts deviating from God's will. He starts deviating from God's plan, and he starts multiplying wives. He starts multiplying. Pretty soon, he's got this harem of the most beautiful women in, in all the world, okay? Now, you would think, man, that guy, he's, man, he's satisfied sexually. Man, that guy, he, he surely doesn't have any sexual temptation. He's got this, this harem full of beautiful women to pick from, right? It is at that moment in David's life. It's not when he's living in a cave okay, running from Saul, it's at that moment in his life that he sees Bathsheba, one of his mighty men's wives, one of his friend's wives, bathing on a rooftop, and, 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 he, and he calls and inquires about her, and he brings her into the palace, and he, and he has a moment of what I would call sin sanity, okay? I don't think it's a real word, but, but I think it's a real thing that people experience, okay? Whenever you begin to block off God, whenever you begin to not believe his purposes, you, you have a little sin sanity, you have a little almost insanity that, that is brought about from sin and he takes Bathsheba and he sleeps with her and his life is forever changed. He lives in the misery of this shambles of a family that he creates from that one act. 
What I'm telling you is that David was not satisfied. He was not filled up through immorality. And then his boy Solomon. You would think if there was ever a guy that says, hey, Dad, dude, you were awesome, and then I see where you failed, and, buddy, I'm going to correct that in my own life. He, this is actually the truer statement. Oftentimes, sons follow right into the steps of, of their father. Man, Solomon gathers thousands of wives and concubines and mistresses. I was trying to think of that. Like, that's like, do you, how do you know their names? You know, I, you know like a thousand. Like, how do, you, how do you remember birthdays, anniversaries? Goodness, some of you guys, you're going on a pretty bad streak of one wife now. I'm forgetting, you know? Anyway, I, I, like that just blows my mind. But, okay, if, if what the world says is true, right, that, that more intimate relationships with really beautiful people satisfy your soul, if that's true, then why did David do what he did? And why did Solomon, thousands, write Ecclesiastes at the end of his life saying, guys, I made a terrible mistake. None of that satisfies. I am empty. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. There's a pretty solid testimony that sin will not satisfy. It will not fill you up. So if, if we're right, if, if people are led into sexual immorality through emptiness, then let's just, let's just realize something. Sin will never fill that emptiness. All right? It'll never fill you up. Stop believing that. And once you stop buying that lie, all of a sudden, a lot of sin's lies kind of lose their power. You know, the, 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 the lie that, that is told by the devil over and over again, that, hey, this is just a little sexual sin. This is just, you know, this is just a little glance, a little flirtation, a little scandalous picture. All of a sudden, that, that lie is exposed for what it is. All, all that does is it starts up the emptiness engine because sin cannot fill you up. Sin can't make you better. You guys remember when I had poison ivy? I went out with Asher and I got it. Remember that? But was that a year or two ago? Oh, that was horrible. Couldn't get rid of it. And and there's this lie that my flesh would tell me. My flesh would say, Oh, if you will just itch that, it would feel so much better, you know? <laughs> and like I would, I would like all day long I'd be like, That's a lie, that's a lie. I know it's a lie. I know it's a lie. I, I've been down that road before. I know it's a lie. And then I mean, it was all, all, almost always, like, right before I got in bed, you know? And, and a lot of times I'd get in bed, and I'd have the sheets, you know, and I'd be laying there, and, I, and the light would be coming, and I'd be like, uh, just a little bit, you know? <sighs> and that is, it's over. You know, there's no sleep that night, man, because all that does, it just inflames it. That's exactly what sin does. So if we're led into sin because of emptiness... What fills you up? And look at this. Here's Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength, I love this, to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that beautiful? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You never get to the end of it. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
What fills you up? Man, guys, God can fill you up. So what, what's that mean for the discontent? That means that the discontent, once, once the discontent begins to know the riches of Jesus, once the, the person who's discontent begins to know with, with all certainty that they've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, once the lonely begins to know the fellowship of the Lord and, and, and what it means to rock with Christ as your constant companion, to know the incredible experience of hearing from God and speaking to God, once those who feel sorry for themselves, right? Believers, we, you fall into this trap, don't you? You fall into the trap of beginning to feel sorry for yourself and to feel like, I don't have what I need and, I, and I'm left out and God hasn't satisfied my soul and you begin to feel sorry. Once that person begins to taste the riches of their inheritance in Christ, once they begin to cultivate a heart of great thanksgiving, man, when you read, guys, I'm convinced that thankfulness is one of the secret weapons against sin. People who are empty, they don't need more sex. You know what people who are empty need? They need more thankfulness. And there's, there's a bunch of places I could turn to show you that. Colossians 3 is fantastic, okay? But we don't have time, all right? So just keep that in mind. Colossians 3, particularly the middle section there, about Paul just says, you, 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 fight, you fight against sin with this uber thankfulness. But let me, let me show you this passage, which I think is incredibly interesting. Ephesians 5, 3, okay? Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual morality and all purity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among saints, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of the place. But instead, let there be, what'd you expect? What'd you expect there? Huh? Were you listening? I bet, if you were listening, I bet you thought he was going to say holiness, right? Like he says, don't let there be any sexual morality. Don't let there be any impurity. Don't let there be any foolish talk. You know, but instead, let there be, and you, you, I thought it was going to be holiness. It's thanksgiving. Let there be thankfulness. And then look, look at where he goes from there. Uh, verse five, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You see, he says, don't give yourself to sexual morality. Give yourself to thankfulness. Don't give yourself to sexual morality. Like he, he sandwiches it there with thankfulness. And man, what, I, what I've seen is when a believer can cultivate a heart of gratitude, man, when, whenever instead of sitting around saying, well, I wish that, my spouse was nicer, and I wish that um, that we were younger, and I wish you know this, and I wish I had this, and wish I, man. When instead of doing that, when you start cultivating this reality that I deserve to be in hell, I deserve to be in hell, and God has blessed me with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, and God has given me this mountain of hope that is in front of me, that is coming from me, and God has has given me this immeasurable riches in Christ, and and God has given me His Holy Spirit, and God has given me the mission of God, and, and when, when I begin to cultivate this thankfulness. I begin to be full, not empty. All of a sudden, those who are unfulfilled, those who are bored, I, I'm so convinced we're bored. I'm convinced that's the plague of our society. No, nobody would ever say that, would you? We would say we're busy, right? But I just wonder if you could, if you could go back about four or five generations, maybe 150 years ago, get your great-grandpappy, put him in a time machine, let him, let him be transported here, right? And just let him watch over you. Like, you don't know he's there. He's just watching you all day long. What's his big question? 
What's his question? This is a guy who lived his life, right, trying to survive, right, trying to build a living, trying to build a life, trying to build a family. You know, he's out chopping wood and, and plowing the fields and, and taking care of 10 kids and trying to, trying to get a family to, to, right? And he's like, man, what are you doing staring at that box all day long? You know, great-great-grandson, you know what? And you're flicking it with your finger? What's in there? What are you looking for? And why haven't you found it all day long? And that's got to be what he says. We're bored. And I think to those who are bored, this new purpose of life, this, this knowing God and being energized as God's co-worker and being on this mission to, to capture souls, to help, to help in the mission of God, to bring lost people into the kingdom, to, be, to bring people who are destined to hell into, into heaven. And when that mission grips your soul, you're filled. Okay, so here's what I'm telling you. I think knowing God can fill you. We've already seen that more sin doesn't fill your emptiness. Knowing God does fill you. Okay, now I know what some of you are going to say. I, I, th- I think there's going to be two responses to this. Uh, I think some people are going to say, okay, I, I, I heard you and I heard the, what the Bible said there, but I just cannot imagine that what you're saying, knowing this invisible God can actually satisfy my soul. You know, I just, I can't, I can't, I can't fathom that. And here's what I would say to that person. I want you to come to know Jesus. I don't think you know him. Now, I think there's other people who genuinely know Jesus, and they would come and say, all right, Pastor, I, I know I'm a believer. Uh, and I know, I know a little bit of what you're saying, but, man, man Pastor, I, I, just feel like, I just feel like I'm looking around at other people, and they're, they're getting stuff that I'm not getting, and I feel like I'm looking around at other people, and I'm reading about people who had joy that I don't have. And, and what, what went wrong? Well, here's what I would say to you. Knowing God is not like you either know him or you don't. And once you do, like there's just one category of knowing him. Do you remember what, what Paul just said just a little bit ago when he prayed about knowing the love of God? He said it's, it's, it's immeasurable. Like, do you see what I'm saying? Like knowing God, it's like, it's like being in the Grand Canyon. Uh, many, many you're like, yeah, there's no hiking illustrations again. Okay, it's like being in Hobby Lobby, right? Uh, it's like being in the Grand Canyon. Those of you who have been to the Grand Canyon, you probably went down the south rim and you went down one trail, right? You went down one trail and you're like, we have experienced the Grand Canyon. Not realizing that if you hiked it along the river, it's something like 750 miles of Grand Canyon. So you got, you got a glimpse of this glory. Okay, Hobby Lobby people. It's like going into Hobby Lobby and you walked right into the front and you saw the little trinkets on the shelf and you saw a little bit, but you didn't see. see it just doesn't work. I'm sorry. I try to get on same page. Just not. You can make it work. Um, you see what I'm saying? In other words, if you're a believer, you're just on the beginning of your journey to know God. There's so much more to know. Let's take the Apostle Paul the guy that wrote this book, right? That wrote 1 Thessalonians, the book we're in. He had an encounter with the risen Jesus on the Damascus Road. Like, saw Jesus, right? Like, he encounters Jesus. He's blinded. He's knocked off his, his, uh, his, his animal, and, and he's, he's, had to be led, he's got to be led into town. And, and, and then the scales come off of his eyes, and he sees the glory of Jesus. He's converted. He's changed. He goes from Saul the persecutor to Paul the, the transformed apostle, um, he has, from then on, he has, 
several incredible visions and, and uh, 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 encounters with God. It says he's caught up to the third heaven. He can't even explain exactly what that means, but he saw things and experienced things that he's not even able to articulate. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. He planted churches all over the known world. And in the book of Philippians, he's at the end of his life. So he's lived as a believer for decades. He's experienced God over and over. He's been willing to lay his life down for Jesus. And at the end of, uh, of his life, in Philippians, in verse 10, he says, says this. He says, here's my goal, guys. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Did you catch that? He's at the end of his life. And he says, my goal is that I may know him. Paul, don't you already know him? Haven't you known him for decades? Didn't you meet him on the Damascus Road and you saw a blind light and you heard a voice from heaven and you were knocked off your animal and you were blinded and scales on your eyes? And, you know, Paul, Paul, you've, you've been, yeah, he did know him. What's he saying? There's more. Here's a guy who at the end of his life, after being ushered up into seeing the glories of heaven with his own eyes, says, man, I just want to know more. There's more to know. So what I'm telling you this morning from this text is, that the answer to our sinful passions is not to be filled up by them. It's to be filled up with God, to know more and more of God. Now, those two things work against each other, okay? So, so in other words, the more you indulge your sinful passions, the harder it is for you to see the glory of God. The more you see the glory of God, the more you will put to death your sinful passions, Everybody get that? No, pastor, show us it in the Bible. All right. 1 Peter 2, 11. Okay, let's, let's look at some scriptures. Beloved, I urge you as sojourner, sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. You see, indulging your passions of your flesh, okay, so taking that look, taking that glance, looking at pornography, giving way to sexual morality, giving away your, your sensual passions, that actually wages war that's, that's fighting against your soul, you knowing God. Let me give you an even clearer one. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Um, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. Look at this. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Desires of the flesh, desires of the Spirit, they fight against each other. Okay? And so, so here's a way to think about it. Whenever you give way to the passions of your flesh, that is an appetite suppressant. Okay? I'm interested in appetite suppressants physically, okay? I think that would be cool if I could look at a big piece of pie and be like, nah, I don't want it. That's hard. But I'm not interested, or what I am interested really in is, is looking at the flesh and saying, I don't want that. See, these two work, work against each other. The more you give way to your sinful passions, the less appetite you have for the things of God. That explains things, doesn't it? Like when, when a Christian starts giving way to their sinful passions, pretty soon they want God less and less. It's an appetite suppressant. But the other is true as well. The more that you 
begin to see the glory of God. And the more that you hunger for him, the more you put to death these passions. Romans 8, 13 is a passage we looked at with Pastor Daniel on Wednesday night with the, uh, the kids uh, this week. And he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But by the spirit, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The flesh is your, your sinful flesh. It's kind of like a spoiled child. I don't know if you've dealt with a spoiled child before, but if you take a spoiled child to Walmart, they want it all, right? They want it all. I want, I want, I want, I want. And, and your tendency is what? Uh, it's just, just give them what they want. You know, just quiet them down. And that works beautifully, doesn't it, right? Like that, that creates a happy, content child that never asks for anything again. Is that what you've been operating against? Some of you are like, yeah, that's, okay, I'm sorry. That's why, that's why it happened like it did, right? No, you know, you know what you need to do with a little boy who's five and might ask for things all the time? You tell him no. No, 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 no. And, and pretty soon, you know, what you, when, you know what you angle for? You angle for, for a little boy that doesn't expect to be catered to. Your flesh is just like that. The more you cater to it, the more it will want. Romans 8, 13, or I'm sorry, Romans 13, 14 says, but put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Starve it. Starve the flesh. Okay, so let's go back to our, our definition of sexual morality. Sexual morality is any sexual relationship outside the confines of marity, marriage. That includes your eyes. It includes your thoughts. Um, Jesus said that in Matthew 5, 28, where he said, if your eye caught, or he says in verse 28, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay? Um, here's, what I, here's what I want to tell you. Number two. Okay? All that was number one. We're going to get number two and number three in about five minutes. All right? Number two is this. What Paul is saying here is that sexual purity is the loving thing to do. Now, the reason I wanted to make sure we got to this one is because our culture is going to say about sexual morality, they're going to say, hey, it, it's love. It's not immorality, Pastor. It's love. Um, I hear that over and over again. Okay? Now, my next question is always, what is your definition of love? Okay? Let me give you the biblical definition of love. The biblical definition of love is this. Love is pursuing, seeking the highest good of somebody else. All right? So whenever I love somebody, what, what am I doing? I am actively pursuing somebody else's highest good. I want the best for you. I want you to flourish. I want, I want you to thrive. I, I want you to be blessed. I want to act and speak and, and, and think and, 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 and spend and, and, and navigate my relationship with you so that you get the best, okay? Now, if that is the right definition of love, and I think it is, then sexual morality cannot be love, right? Because when you engage in sexual morality with somebody, you are hurting them. You're hurting their relationship with Jesus. You're bringing them into sin. You're causing them to sin. You're causing them to experience the consequences of sin on their life. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18, 6 and 7, where he said, it'd be better for you for a millstone to be hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. 
sexual morality is not loving. And that's exactly what Paul says here. He says in verse 6 that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. Now the final thing I want to make sure you see from this text is that a habitual lifestyle of sexual morality will ultimately face the wrath of God. Okay, let me read it again. It's the verse we just read. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. He is an avenger in all these things. Hebrews 13, 4 said, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Matthew chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Uh, Let me read it again. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you that one of your members should perish than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, those texts are not meant to produce some kind of yo-yo Christian, okay, who, who basically has a good day. You know, he, he feels like he, he, he starved his eyes. He, di- he didn't look in lust. He, he kept his heart pure, and so he feels like a Christian that day. And then the next day, he fails. He looks at something he shouldn't look at, and, and now, now he feels like he's not a Christian. And the next day, you know, it, it's, not, it's not meant to produce that, okay? That, that's not what the Bible is saying. Here's what the Bible is clearly saying, okay? A believer cannot stay in sin, all right? If we had time, I'd, I'd take you to 1 John 3, where, where, where that's the primary point in the, in the chapter, is that a believer cannot stay, cannot live in habitual sin. That is Paul's point here. He's saying uh, the believer can't live in sexual morality because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, all right? You can't stay in sin as a born-again Christian. You can't do it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is going to be all over you. The Holy Spirit is going to convict you. God is going to discipline you. He's going to paddle you. He's going to convict you. You're going to be broken on the inside. Ask David. If you look at David and his his sin in the Old Testament, after he sins with Bathsheba, he writes two Psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, that basically said, when I sinned against God with Bathsheba, I I, I couldn't go on. He said, "My, my spiritual life dried up. He said, I will up. I, I, was in, I was in pain. I was in spiritual pain being separated from God because of my sin. And that's exactly what a believer will do. God won't let you stay in sin. He will bring conviction on your life. Whenever a believer hears these verses and he's in sin, it drives him to battle against his sin. It drives him to kill the sin in his life. You can't stay in sin. You can't live an unrepentant life. As a believer, God won't let you. He'll bring you to church like this, and you'll hear this word, and God will grip your heart, and he will bring you to sweet repentance. He'll bring you to confess your sin and to get right with Jesus and to believe in the forgiveness of God. I want to close with the last verse. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Basically, to live in habitual sin is basically to disregard God. It's to say, God, I don't care about you. I don't value you. I didn't, I didn't put this in the computer, Kenny, so don't look, at, don't look for it. But in Hebrews chapter 12, there's a really interesting verse about sexual morality. 
Hebrews 12, um, verse 16 says this. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. And then you would expect that the writer would say, because, you know, he committed this immoral act. But he doesn't. You know what he says? He says, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Who sold his birthright for a single meal. You remember the story, don't you? Esau was, he was the firstborn son of, uh, of Jacob. Uh, no, of Isaac, I'm sorry. Uh, he was supposed to carry the birthright of the Messiah. He, he was supposed to, he, he was, it was his firstborn right to have all of his fathers, all that his father had, his inheritance, right? But you remember he was out hunting one day. And uh, he was a big outdoor guy, woods guy. He'd been hunting all day, didn't kill anything, and he was starving. And he come in, and his brother Jacob, Jacob's one of those guys who watches the cooking channel all the time, and uh, Jacob had been cooking up some stew, some chili, and man, it, it smelled fantastic. And Esau's like, hey, give me some of that chili. Give me some of that stew. And Jacob said, well, hey, sell me your birthright. Trade me your birthright, and I'll give you as much stew as you want. Esau's like, hey, what's a birthright to me? I'm hungry. And he makes the deal. Now, how is that, how is that akin to sexual morality? When sexual morality, what you do is you trade something incredibly valuable and priceless for a few minutes of fleeting pleasure. What did Esau do? He traded the birthright of the Messiah for a bowl of stew. You see, the Bible's saying, don't have that heart. Don't value the wrong things. Don't, don't trade Knowing God for the scraps of sinful desire. Don't do it. Let's pray. God, I ask you, Father, to help us this morning. Uh, God, help us to battle against our sinful flesh. God, I pray that you would give us victory, Lord, over, over sinful desire. God, I pray, for, I pray for a fullness, God, for those who feel empty. God, who for those who feel discontent and cheated and disrespected and bored and empty. God, I pray that you would show them that you can fill them up. God, show them what it means to be filled up by you. Show them what it means to have the riches of Christ. God, show them what it means to have the beauty of Christ. God, fill their souls. Father, help us to fight against sinful desire to fight against it with a, the solemnness of, of those who, who realize that we cannot stay in sin. Father, I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.